Hey everybody, this is Murder Alphabet Soup. I'm Kira. How's everybody doing? Has June been as crazy for everyone as it has for me? Because damn. Speaking of crazy, this week E is for eating the evidence and we are going to be talking about Joe the Cannibal Metheny and after that Leonardo Cacciuli, the Italian killer granny also known as the soap maker of Correggio. Joe Metheny was on what started as a quest for revenge that turned into pure bloodlust and killing for sport. Leonardo, who is of this episode my personal... Favorite's not the right word, but you know what I mean. She's the most interesting to me. Her mission to keep her son safe and intense superstition led to the murder of three women. Both of these cases, however, involve members of the community unknowingly eating the bodies and helping dispose of the evidence. Joseph Roy Metheny was born on March 2, 1995. While growing up in Essex, Maryland, his father, who was known to be an alcoholic, was killed in a car accident when he was six. Metheny falsely claimed that his mother had died. He also said that he was neglected as a child along with his five siblings while his mom was too busy working double shifts. He said he had often been sent by his parents to live with other families in a foster-like situation. But Joe's mother was not dead, and she also had a lot of other parts of Joe's story to dispute. She said that although they were kind of poor, and she did have to work multiple jobs as a waitress, barmaid, and food truck driver, she had done her best and provided them with a normal family life. The kids never went hungry and always had a roof over their heads. She said, quote, He was smart and had a good childhood. If he was neglected, it was his own fault. It was a pretty good home, end quote. She said that as a child, he was polite and nice, and he loved to ride bikes. Joe joined the Army in 1973 when he turned 18. He claimed that he had served a tour in Vietnam, and there is where he became addicted to heroin while he was in the artillery unit. His mother, once again, was like, uh, no. She said that he served in Germany, and she had no recollection of him ever serving in Vietnam. After he had joined the military and left home, he started barely ever contacting his mother anymore. She said, quote, He just kept drifting further and further away. I think the worst thing that's ever happened to him was drugs. It's a sad, sad story. End quote. By the 90s, Joe spent a lot of time hanging out in bars, living in camps with groups of homeless men in South Baltimore, and almost all of his income went to fueling his addiction with crack, heroin, and one of his favorite drinks, Southern Comfort. I also like Southern Comfort, but maybe not with the crack and heroin, you know? He did hold down a job as a forklift driver, and most people who knew him would describe him as intelligent, well-spoken, and well-mannered. His nickname was Tiny, even though he was about six foot one and around 450 pounds. In July 1994, he was living with his girlfriend and six-year-old son in South Baltimore. He worked as a truck driver, so he was gone for long periods of time on the road. One day, he came home to find that his girlfriend had left and taken their son with her. She was addicted to drugs and was living on the street after she had left. It's around this time that he meets Kathy Ann Magaziner, a sex worker who was either 39 or 45 at the time. And I'll say this now, there is actually a lot of conflicting reports I found on both her age and when she was actually killed. But my theory is that this is when she was killed, and I'll explain that later. 
So he meets her at a bar and lures her back to his home. He then assaults and strangles her with a cord and buries her body in a shallow grave at the pallet factory where he worked. Six months later, he goes back to the body, digs her up, removes the head, and he says that he cleaned it off and quote-unquote made love to it. He later puts it in a box and throws it away. So about his girlfriend leaving, in his confession, Joe was quoted saying, quote, I found out about six months later she had moved on the other side of town with some asshole that had her selling her ass for drugs. They got busted for drugs and they took my son away from them for child neglect and child abuse, end quote. Joe knew that he couldn't just go to social services and get his son due to his past criminal record with drugs and, you know, violence, bar fights, things like that. And he wanted revenge for losing his son. So he went out looking for his ex-girlfriend and this guy she was with. Now I'm going to read you an excerpt from Joe's confession about his next killings. Quote, I had no chance of going to social services and trying to get my son back due to my past criminal record. So I took it upon myself with the hatred I had for these two who lost my son to go looking for them. I had found out from someone that they were going under that bridge and getting high with some homeless motherfuckers who lived under that bridge. I went under there looking for them. They were not there, but the two homeless motherfuckers that got high with them were down there. They were passed out on some old stinking mattress and that's where they were when I left, except they were dead from being chopped up. That same night, I lured the first crack whore down under that bridge. I got her high and was trying to get information out of her about my old lady's whereabouts. She acted like she didn't know, so I beat the hell out of her and raped her ass and then killed her. I put her in some bushes and went and lured a second bitch down there. I did the same to her as the last one. But as I was about to throw her in the bushes with the other one, I noticed this old black man down by the river fishing looking back up at me. I grabbed a steel pipe that was laying by and ran down on him and laid his head wide open. So I put the two girls and him in the river and weighed them down with rocks. That was a very busy night for me, five murders within about seven hours. I washed up in that river and cleaned up the crime scene as much as I could, then left. End quote. About two and a half weeks later, Joe was arrested and charged with the murders of the two homeless men that he had chopped up with an axe and spent about 18 months in Baltimore City Jail awaiting trial. The trial went on for about a week before being thrown out due to lack of evidence that he had actually killed them. Joe was now a free man again and went back to the pallet company to talk to his old boss about getting his job back. He told his boss that he could stay in this little trailer that was on the property and that would allow him to keep an eye on the place. So his boss agreed to this and handed over the keys to the front gate and the main building. This company was super isolated and it was out on a dead-end road and this was perfect for what Joe was planning to do. So now this should be around July of 96, somewhere around in there. He then killed two other women, one of these being Kimberly Lynn Spicer, who was 23. She was also a sex worker at the time. Joe brings her back to his trailer. He then starts attacking her, raping her, and stabbing her to death. I'm not sure when the other woman was killed, but we'll also get to that later. But we do know that Kimberly was killed somewhere around mid-November. He then dismembers and butchers the bodies and puts the meat in Tupperware bowls and puts them in the freezer. He then hides parts of Kimberly's body under some pallets in the factory. Over the next few weeks, Joe opened up an open pit meat stand where he sold pork and beef sandwiches. He is quoted in his confession saying, Quote, I killed and butchered their bodies up. I cut the meat up and put them in some Tupperware bowls and put it in the freezer. 
I buried the remains in several shallow graves in the little woods behind the company. Over the next couple weeks, on the weekends, I opened up a little open pit beef stand. I had real roast beef and pork sandwiches. They were very good. The human body tastes very similar to pork. If you mix it together, no one can tell the difference. Everything was going pretty good until I ran out of my special meat. End quote. So on December 8, 1996, this is when he lures Rita Kemper to his trailer. He starts tearing her clothes off and beating on her, and she's freaking out, understandably, and putting up a fight. And he tells her that he's going to kill her and bury her in the woods like the rest of the girls. Joe turns around for a second, and Rita makes a break for it. She runs out of the trailer towards the eight-foot chain-link fence with barbed wire around the top. There's a stack of pallets up against it that's about ten feet high. So she climbs this thing and jumps over the fence and then runs down to the main road where a man ends up picking her up and taking her to a gas station where they call the police. At this point, Joe knows the cops are going to be coming, so he gathers up her clothes and gets the gate key. He says that he goes down to open the gate and that's when a cop pulls up, gets out, and tells him to get on the ground. He is then booked and charged for the kidnapping and attempted murder of Kemper. And remember when I said that he just hid Kimberly's body in the factory? Well, apparently he had asked a friend to help him bury the remains, and this friend later told police about this on December 15th, and he was charged with this murder that same day. Joe confessed to other murders, and three days later, they found the skeleton of Kathy Ann Magaziner. Most of her skull was missing, but they were able to identify her through dental records. He also confessed about the bodies that he had sunk in the river, but when police went and investigated, they couldn't find any bodies. He was also indicted for killing Tawny Lynn Ingracia, but this was later dropped due to the lack of evidence. He was tried in 97 for Kemper's case, in which he was given 50 years for kidnapping and attempted sexual assault. In 98, he was sentenced to the death penalty for the murder of Spicer, it was in this hearing that he said he murdered because he enjoyed it, and no excuse other than he likes to do it. He was quoted saying, quote, The words, I'm sorry, will never come out, for they would be a lie. End quote. He also said that he was more than willing to give up his life for what he had done, and in August of 98, he pleaded guilty to murdering Magaziner, and he received a life sentence for this. In 2000, his death sentence for the Spicer case was overturned and changed to a life sentence. They had originally been able to charge him with robbery in addition to the murder because he had taken her clothes and her purse and disposed of them elsewhere and not buried them with her. But in 2000, they ruled that robbery was not apparently a motive, so they couldn't really hold up the death sentence. While serving out his sentences, Joe was found dead in his prison cell at the Western Correctional Institution in Cumberland, Maryland, on August 5, 2017. He was 62. There was supposedly an investigation into how he died and the circumstances of his death, but they were never made available to the public. The other things that he said in his confession include, quote, The only thing I feel bad about in any of this is that I didn't get to murder the two motherfuckers I was really after, and that's my ex-old lady and the bastard she got hooked up with. Well, that's my story. Horrible but true. So the next time you're riding down the road and you happen to see an open pit beef stand that you've never seen before, make sure you think about this story before taking a bite of that sandwich. Sometimes you never know who you may be eating. End quote. I did say I would explain the confusion behind Kathy Magaziner's murder, so here it goes. 
There were multiple articles and reports saying that Magaziner was killed by Joe in July of 1994 and that she was buried for about two years before being discovered. This puts her at the July 1994 claim, and this would also give enough time for the body to skeletonize as it was described when they discovered it. The other reports I found put her at around the same time as Kimberly Spicer in 96. So I was thinking, okay, that's the other woman that he killed and put into the meat patties. That would also be more likely because she was buried on the factory property when I don't think he was actually living there until 96 after he was acquitted of murdering the two homeless men. But he did work there before, so it's still possible. But this doesn't go with the claim of her having been dead for two years before she was found. But I think she was actually killed in 94, just looking at the state of the body. And I think the other woman, he was indicted for possibly murdering, Tony Lynn Ingracia. I think she was actually killed by Joe around the same time as Spicer. But that's just my speculation and opinion, so... He also confessed to other murders, including three other women along the Washington Boulevard, and there's been speculation that he had killed all the way back to 76, but there's no evidence to support any of those. I do think, though, that when he killed those five people that night, he had to have done something like this before. I mean, he could have just flown into a vengeful rage, yeah, but I think with how violent they were, he had maybe done something like this before. But if you think that I got that all wrong or you have another theory, let me know because honestly, it's driving me crazy. Now I want to tell you guys about Leonardo Chancelli, who is also referred to as the soap maker of Correggio. There are a lot of Italian pronunciations in here. It's set in Italy, so there's a good chance I might say a few things wrong, but bear with me. Leonardo was born on April 18, 1894 in Montella Avellino. In 1917, she married Raffaele Pansardi, a registry office clerk. Her parents didn't approve of this, as there was another man that they had in mind that they wanted her to marry. Chansuli claims that on this day, her mother cursed them. In 1921, the couple moved to Pansardi's native town in Lara, Potenza, and in 1927, she was imprisoned for fraud. After being released, she and her husband moved to Lacedonia after their home was destroyed by the Erpina earthquake in 1930. They moved again to Correggio, where Leonardo opened up a small shop and was very popular and well-respected in the neighborhood. Throughout her marriage, Leonardo was pregnant 17 times, but three had been lost to miscarriages and 10 more died before the age of 10. As a result, she was extremely protective of her four surviving children. Part of this behavior stemmed from a warning that had been given by a fortune teller who told her that she would marry and have children, but all of the children would die young. She also visited a palm reader who told her, in your right hand, I see prison, in your left, a criminal asylum. So this obviously didn't make her feel any better and only made her more superstitious. So when her son Giuseppe told her in 1939 that he would be joining the Italian army, Leonardo decided, you know what would probably keep my son safe in the army? Human sacrifice. And that's exactly what she did. Her first victim was a local woman named Faustina Setti. She was described as a spinster and didn't really have much family, so Leonardo knew that there probably wouldn't be too many questions asked if she disappeared. 
She invited her over with the promise of setting her up with a husband, and Leonardo had her write letters to her loved ones saying that she was going abroad to visit this man. After that, she gave her drugged wine, and once she was vulnerable, she murdered her with an axe. She cut her body into nine pieces and drained her blood into a basin. She then added the pieces to a pot and added seven kilos of caustic soda that she had for the purpose of making soap. She stirred this together until all the pieces dissolved into this dark, soupy liquid that she then disposed of by putting into several buckets and emptying it into a nearby septic tank. She then waited for the blood in the basin to coagulate, and she dried it in the oven, ground it up, and mixed it with flour, sugar, chocolate, milk, and eggs. With this, she made lots of crunchy tea cakes that she served to the ladies in the neighborhood that would come visit though she does say that her and Giuseppe also ate them. It's said that she also took Seti's life savings, which was 30,000 lire, as payment for finding her a husband. Air quotes, finding her a husband. I guess she wasn't convinced that just one sacrifice was going to keep her son safe, because soon after she invited another woman over that had little to no family. Her name was Francesca Soavi. Similarly to Seti, she told her that she had a teaching job for her abroad and had her write postcards to her friends to tell them her plans and that she was fine. She again was given drugged wine and murdered with an axe. Her body was treated the same way Seti's had been. She supposedly obtained about 3,000 lire from Suave as payment for her services. Leonardo's final victim was former soprano Virginia Cacioppo. Leonardo told her that she had a secretary job for her with an impresario in Florence. She was told not to tell a single soul where she was going, and she agreed. She was killed the same way that Leonardo's previous victims were, but this time she used her body to make soap. Leonardo said this about it. Quote, she ended up in the pot like the other two. Her flesh was fat and white. When it had melted, I added a bottle of cologne, and after a long time on the boil, I was able to make some most acceptable creamy soap. I gave bars to neighbors and acquaintances. The cakes, too, were better. That woman was really sweet. End quote. Another difference with Virginia was that she actually had family. Her sister-in-law was getting suspicious about her just disappearing and had actually last seen her entering Leonardo's home. She reported this to the superintendent of police who opened an investigation and they arrested Leonardo, but she maintained that she had nothing to do with it. It wasn't until her son was being accused of the murders that she fessed up to protect him. She was tried for the murder in 1946, the whole time showing no remorse. She even went so far as to say this on the stand. Quote, I gave the copper ladle, which I used to skim the fat off the kettles, to my country, which was so badly in need of metal during the last days of the war. End quote. She was found guilty and sentenced to 30 years in prison and three years in a criminal asylum, which very creepily lines up with what the fortune teller had foreshadowed for her. She died of cerebral apoplexy in a women's criminal asylum in Pizzoli on October 15, 1970. You can now see artifacts from the case, including her collection of axes and knives, as well as the pot that she used to boil her victims in at the Criminological Museum in Rome. And there you have it. I told you it was going to be crazy, but I hope you guys enjoyed hearing about it as much as I did researching it. And as always, you can head over to the Murder Alphabet Soup Pod Instagram, see pictures, hit me up on there, whatever you want to do. It's almost July. This year is like half over. I'm already ready for fall. I don't know about you guys.
But thanks for listening. I hope you all have a good week and I'll see you here next time.